You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are a few highlights from this week's program. I wish that I had had more business classes in college, um, but I feel like I could describe soil structure really well and soil chemistry and plant anatomy and um, plant physiology. But um, beyond that, I I couldn't, I didn't leave college knowing how to operate a tractor or how to cultivate. It's just a beginning, but I hope one step, one a small step can take you to a big step. So it's a beginning and I want to see it grow and see where it takes us. This is Dr. Lisa Belial and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 301, Farming Flowers and Cultivating Coffee, airing for the first time on Sunday, June 25th, 2017. There is an inherent joy in working with what the earth offers. Today, we speak with Stacy Brenner, who lives, farms, and flowers at Broadturn Farm in Scarborough. We also discuss the Portland-based Rwanda Bean Company, a company that returns 50% of its profits to coffee farmers in Rwanda, with co-founder Mike Mwanadata. Thank you for joining us. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is Stacy Brenner, who lives, farms, and flowers at Broadturn Farm in Scarborough with her husband, John Bliss, and two daughters. They raise cut flowers and organic vegetables, host weddings, and operate a summer day camp. Thanks for coming in today. Thanks for having me. So I really enjoyed reading about you and your husband, John Bliss, and your children, Emma and Flora. It was like a it's like this lovely like fairy tale. Like you could write a children's story about it. John Bliss and Flora and and you live on the farm and you flower. Correct. I'm guessing that the actuality of it is not so much a fairy tale, but but still kind of fun. It's always fun, but it's definitely not a fairy tale. Definitely not a fairy tale. <laughs> well, you have this interesting background because in addition to having now this farm, you have a bachelor's degree in agriculture from the University of Arizona. And you have two degrees in nursing from the University of Pennsylvania. So it seems like you've um, been all about a lot of different things. Circuitous route. Yeah. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm completely fine with that. I mean, I'm a doctor <laughs> who hosts a radio show, so I have no um, criticisms. Uh-huh. So, but tell me a little bit about all of this. Um, well, I always wanted to be a farmer, so I opted to study agriculture in college. Um, But then I had my first daughter when I was in college and realized that I was pretty smitten with the birth process in women's health. And so I was drawn to becoming a midwife and pursued that route. Um, When John and I met, uh, I was a single mom living in Philly in school, and um, we decided to throw our lot in together and come to Maine to farm. I like that, even that, throwing your lot in together. There's a bit of like, um, well, let's just see what happens. Right. Well, and when you're a single mom, it's sort of all or nothing. Like, he's either going to like, you know, there's a limit to dating when you're a single mom. You're either like, 
you're either going to bring him home and introduce him to everybody or you're not. And so you're either going to, there's full buy-in or there's not. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So how did you end up at the University of Arizona? Well, I went to a small boarding school, Quaker boarding school in Pennsylvania for high school. And I was just really excited to kind of blow the top off and go somewhere big and different. And Arizona was as far from Pennsylvania as you could get. It was my high school's in suburban Philadelphia, the George School. So I was really looking forward to a big, new, fun experience. And um, at the time, I was really into rock climbing. And so I was looking forward to being in a place where I could spend more time outside all year round. So that must have been interesting. I mean, just start with the the fact that you went to a Quaker boarding school outside of Pennsylvania. I mean, outside of Philadelphia. That's that's very interesting just to start with. <laughs> what, what what kind of thought went into that? Um, I when I was uh, I guess I went as a sophomore in high school, and just really excited to strike out and you know leave my parents' house. And I was looking for a different experience than the public high school in our town and so my parents were supportive of the idea and and off I went. So what did you learn from um, sort of the the Quaker affiliation? Well the best lesson I had in high school was in my um, Quakerism class. We did a unit on Helen and Scott Nearing who are sort of famous back-to-the-land homesteaders that had a homestead in Vermont and also in northern Maine along the coast down east and uh, so I wrote my senior term paper about Helen and Scott Nearing. They were sort of this embodiment of my childhood idol of Flora Ingalls. So I had this moment where I realized, oh, there's really people that do this. You know, they have gardens and they eat from their land and they milk cows. Well, I guess the Nearings didn't milk cows, but that this was a possibility that I could do this. And so it sort of like tur- started my wheels turning and this, this kind of idea that this was a, po- a real possibility. Isn't there also something um, in Quakerism about listening to your own voice and listening to what's coming from inside of you as far as creating your own path? Yeah, there's lots of work around introspection and sort of seeking the light within to to guide you forward. So your light guided you over to the (laughs) University of Arizona, and you have this agricultural degree, and then you went into nursing for a while, and now you're up in Maine. But it seems like in an interesting way, all of these things probably intersect. Yeah, I, d- I do think that they all have an element of nurture to them that is fulfilling and rewarding on a everyday and a big picture level. And the, um, the thing I have realized about the role of being a midwife and walking families through the process of having their babies, becoming a family, especially for their first Um, it's this really big moment for them, but we spend a lot of time building the relationship leading up to the birth so that there's trust and comfort. And then you have that big moment, but it's really about the relationship building. And so when I'm doing the work of farming and building relationships with clients and customers, particularly around flowers and people's weddings, I've realized that it's incredibly similar. It's all psychology. It's all big moments. It's all about being present and creating trust and space for these families to come together around what is a significant ritual. And so that's pretty similar. It's just basically, you know, being a guide. And so whether the medium is birth or flowers on a wedding, it's, it has been for me quite similar. The stakes are a little different. 
<laughs> well, I mean, yes, you obviously you want to come out with a healthy baby, but, right, but right. you also want to come out with a healthy relationship. Exactly. Yeah. I think the product of the flowers, you know, it's the stakes of the flowers are, are less, uh, it feels like a, a lower risk than, than being present for the... Yes, certainly birth. if you yeah. don't give them exactly <laughs> the flowers they need, that probably isn't right, going right, to right. cause problems in their in the marriage. relationship. Right. Hopefully. <laughs> I, I love this. Um, one of the things that I really enjoyed about being a medical student and a resident was birth, mm. was mm-hmm. was really that whole process. But it wasn't just the birth. It was the, the starting from the beginning and, exactly and a lot of times you know people if you're a midwife or a family doctor you know people before they even get pregnant exactly so you yeah. actually there is the ground is being created i don't know f- created fertile i suppose right, right yeah which is that whole um and there's a cyclical nature to it as well because you get pregnant you uh, have your pregnancy you give birth and then most people or many people will do it again right and there's a there's a bit of that also in farming. Totally. Very cyclical, very seasonal. We get, you know, we like to think that we've been doing this for 16 seasons, and we've had 16 chances to plant some tomatoes. So we've only really had 16 tries at getting it right. And it's, you know, birth feels similar. You know, you sort of get one, two, five, depending on how many babies you ought to have. And and really, is there there's so many right ways. It's just about getting to a good end result of a healthy baby or healthy vegetable or nice flower at the end of the process but the cyclical nature is is super appealing i do like the idea that there's so many right ways yeah because i i believe that this is something that we we all want we all want the best way but there's no best way right there's just a really good way hopefully for each person exactly so is there also some element of that in working with the families that um, have their weddings at broad term? Yeah, definitely. So we engage with families because they've opted to get married at the farm, and then we engage with them because they've hired us to help them with flowers for their wedding all over Maine and down into Boston, New Hampshire, um, Vermont. So I find that uh, what um, what my role is is to figure out how to meet them where they are. There's always budget constraints. There's always um, a vision for what someone imagines it's going to be versus what they have to maybe pair it back to. And then our capacity to kind of meet them where they are. And then we're always pushing them in a, a sometimes somewhat uncomfortable way for some people, but other others are quite comfortable with it to really rethink the vision in terms of what we can provide seasonally from the farm, from the woods in Maine um, versus having to buy things in from abroad. So always, um, always trying to sort of realign the vision so that we can make the design work with what it is that they're looking for and what we can provide from, from our land. Why flowers? It's, it seems like <laughs> not everybody makes that choice. I love yeah. flowers. I'm very excited yeah. that you do flowers. But some people are just like, okay, I'm going to grow this food. I'm going to eat this food. Yeah. It's all about the food. Yeah. it was. Uh, so we were totally drawn to farming from a righteous food perspective, wanting to feed people. We specifically wanted to be CSA farmers and create community around food and farming. And we have been doing that for about 16 years. And this will actually be the first year that we don't have a produce CSA. But the flowers came in because we um, 
Well, let's see. Let me first tell you why we started doing weddings. These two men in Portland, they're both in the theater community, approached us and asked us, uh, this is about 15 years ago, if we would host their wedding. And we were like, well, that sounds fun. Sure, let's do it. And we had a blast. We really, really enjoyed hosting their wedding. And then that kept happening. People kept asking us, and we kept hosting weddings. And then the caterers were asking us for food for the wedding so that they would have ingredients to prepare for the meal. And then we always were growing flowers on a small scale, and people started asking us if we could help them with the flowers for the wedding. And around that time, uh, my second daughter was born, Flora, and I was a little hemmed in to sort of the dooryard area, and so I just started planting crazy amounts of flowers in our yard. And and then they started sort of moving into the field and we had row crops of flowers. And John said, okay, so you got to figure out how to sell these flowers because you can't just grow them and like have them sit there. We don't have the, uh, you know, we can't give the labor up and not have a market for the flowers and we can't give the, you know, the land over to the flowers without having a market. So we just started started telling people, you know, that we were growing flowers and we had flowers for sale, and it was a pretty organic process. And it took a while to sort of grow, um, but it really event. It's quite. It's it's taken off, and it's become a major component of our operation. But it was kind of by accident. <laughs> it was definitely not intentional. Was there anything in your agricultural? training at the University of Arizona that um, pointed you in the direction of flowers? Uh, probably the best class I had was as uh, in plant anatomy, and we had to dissect flowers, cut them in half in different cross-sections, and look at them under the microscope and draw them. So looking at them that closely and all the patterns that repeat themselves in plants and in nature, uh, that's pretty fabulous. But in terms of running a business, I mean, my, my education was pretty science-based, so it didn't really prepare me for what I actually do, which is be, I'm a small business owner. So the farming piece is, is an element of it, but mostly what I'm doing is, is um, functioning as a businesswoman and trying to promote the business and manage employees and all of those things. So I wish that I had had more business classes in college, um, but I feel like I could describe soil structure really well <laughs> and soil chemistry and plant anatomy and um, physiolo- plant physiology. But um, beyond that, I, I, couldn't, I didn't leave college knowing how to operate a tractor or you know, how to cultivate or any of those things. But I did have a fun job as an orchid caretaker, which I enjoyed quite a bit for a professor who had a private orchid collection. He, was a, he, was a, he would travel the world and bring species back and breed different species. And um, so I'd go spend time in his greenhouses and take care of his plants. And that was pretty special. Yeah, that, that sounds great because I personally have, um, I think, caused the demise of multiple <laughs> orchids. And it's actually a very interesting yeah. um, process to try yeah. to, I guess, nurture these orchids along and get them to bloom yeah, repeatedly, yeah. if that's yeah. the goal. I don't know if, if that's even the goal. Maybe just to keep them happy in their plant <laughs> selves, I guess. Or keep them green. <laughs> keep them green. Yeah, I, I manage to do that most of the time. Uh-huh. But... But the breed bloom is where you struggle. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, they like a pretty particular climate, most of them. And so in, what you're essentially trying to do is mimic that. The, sh- the bathroom with the you know steam from the shower is a really good spot. But they like a nice, diffuse, bright light, and they like humidity. 
Right. Yeah. And you don't, not, not all bathrooms have that. Right. Well, and if you live in an old farmhouse in Maine, you probably have a pretty cold bathroom right. most days unless you're in the shower. Right. <laughs> yes. No, this is true. Well, I don't feel yeah. as badly now that I'm, and I actually have an orchid that's rebloomed again now. So what am I saying? You good, know, sometimes good. it just works out. Yeah. Yeah. But there is something that what you're saying is, yes, to be able to take what you feel drawn to and then actually work it into a life. There are complications of that, of course. You don't necessarily have the business background, but you're still describing to me this interest in dissecting flowers and the repeating patterns, and you're still describing to me this interest in birth and that process and making that into something practical. So that transformation is, it seems like as difficult as it's been has been worthwhile. Oh yeah, definitely. I wouldn't change it. Are you, um, one of your children I believe is older, Twenty-one, mm-hmm. correct. Emma is Emma. twenty-one. Yeah, and Flora is ten. Ten. So over this process, what has Emma learned by watching you? <laughs> well, she's a junior in the nursing program at USM, and uh, she's pretty drawn to women's health. She's uh, she's taught me a lot about intersectional feminism in the last few years. So we've lots of uh, thoughtful discussions about. Um, you know, and when I was in college, it was women's studies, but now it's women and gender studies. So that's pretty fabulous and exciting. Um, so it's interesting. I find I learn more from her these days than I imagine she learns from me. Um, and she, <laughs> she's going to kill me. She came home the other day and she told me that her, she, she went, she was going on and on and on about how she wants to be a um, sex ed teacher. And, um, that was pretty exciting and fabulous. And, um, but I, I felt myself blushing. <laughs> Even with your background as a yes, midwife. Yes, yes. That's but um, that was very exciting. Why, why were you That's blushing? That's a good question. I, mean, I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. But it was very exciting. Um, but I think she, it's interesting over the last few years, a lot of her friends have come to us looking for farm um, apprentice positions and have been interested in being a part of the farm. So she, I think this is pretty um, common for most small businesses. Uh, family businesses, but she doesn't work in our business. Um, she doesn't want to work for us. She doesn't want us to be her employers. Um, in a pinch, I can get her to help me out with something if we're in a real tough moment and things are wild. But she um, she has a great appreciation for the food we produce and for the meals that we're able to make from the farm. And she's pretty excited to have her friends around on the farm. And um, it's I think increased her appreciation to see her friends and her peers excited about the work that's happening in and around local agriculture in Maine. It seems like that's actually pretty common that our kids will appreciate us, but they appreciate us even more through the lens of their friends. Exactly. Yeah. And I have also a 21-year-old daughter and also having, obviously, you and I have somewhat parallel paths. You know, I had my son when I was in medical school. And so I have definitely been a working mother and work outside the home, I need to say, because all mothers are working mothers, all parents are working parents, but my entire life. I have never not done these things. And now my 21-year-old, who also has a gender studies um, co-major, she is telling me stuff and having conversations with me yeah. and bringing stuff up and I'm thinking oh that's so interesting like it's, uh-huh. it all circles back around again totally yeah it's very exciting and the perspectives yeah you know the perspectives have shifted in the last two decades imagine yeah. that yeah so 
And the the one thing I didn't realize, no one told me, and I'm so excited because I have another chance at it with my 10-year-old, is that if you can brave those adolescent years and hold on tight and maintain the communication and the relationship as best as possible, and sometimes you feel like you're not you're like you're banging your head against the wall but on the flip side when they reach 21 22 you know you have this friend and this adult that you enjoy having for dinner and having a conversation with and and your time with your adult child is going to be so much have so much more longevity than when you know and they're 10 for a minute and they're 11 for a minute and they're you know 15 to 17 for a minute those years are so much shorter than the relationship you have with your adult child and your adult child from in my experience, comes out more like their 10-year-old self. They sort of lose that adolescent bravado and start shedding away, and they come back, and the essence of who they are is back. And that's pretty special and exciting. And I wish someone told me that, because I think I would have appreciated the ride of adolescence a little more if I knew that on the other side there was this gift of a adult child that you really enjoyed being with. Yeah, I, I mean, I have three kids. My, my youngest is 16, and... <laughs> I had nine younger brothers and sisters, and I, I think I had a sense of that. But I think while you're going through it, there's oh, just—it really doesn't matter what somebody tells you. Right. <laughs> you just have to kind of like dig in and uh-huh. show up and be willing to um, ride the storm a little yes. bit. Yes. Yeah. But you know, I think there's something that you're saying that's bringing something up for me, and that is that typically adolescence has this very specific, um, I, I guess juju around it in our culture that we all believe that all teenagers have to be rebellious and they're all going to slam their doors on us and that we all we should just leave them alone and they're all going to I don't know do the things that quote teenagers do but I actually disagree with that I actually think it is possible teenagers are very difficult but it is possible to hang in there it is possible to have an ongoing relationship and I agree with you that you can get to the other side and have this really wonderful relationship with another adult that happens to have been your child. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think they want you to leave them alone. I think that's true. Yeah. They I, want to know that they can push this boundary and they're going to hit it and and then some, you know, someone's going to come back and give them feedback and check in with them and be present for them. But they don't want to hit the boundary and then just keep, you know, they don't want to they don't want to hit it and keep going. They want to hit something and feel secure and stable and know that and that that there's there's home. Yes, yes, I absolutely agree with that. I mean, there is something about what we're describing, which is also related to farming and growth, which is this investment, you know, this ongoing investment in things like soil or in employees or in relationships with people who come to the farm. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it really is, there's a persistence that's needed in any of those situations. Right, right. Yeah, soil is really interesting. I think that's a great topic. Um, What we're learning about soil management, and especially with organic farming, but with all farming, is that there is um, this fabulous layer at the top of the soil for for a couple inches where you have this really rich soil microbial environment, and you really want to manage that environment as well as possible because that's what allows for all of the nutrient absorption to really happen well and for moisture retention in your soil and for your soil structure to stay strong. And so um, tending to that for many years builds the nicest, thickest, richest soil microbial environment that you can find. And that's what really yields uh, strong and successful farms because they 
tend that soil well. And do you notice over time differences in, say, your flowers? Yeah, so it's interesting. We we have all different kinds of ways that we produce different crops based on how how we're planting it, whether it's going in direct seed or whether we're starting it as a transplant in the greenhouse and then transplanting it out into the field. Um, some of our fields get covered with... Um, a thin layer of plastic on the row where the plant is going to be planted and then in the walkways we layer um, so neighbors and landscapers drop fall leaves off for us and then we'll mulch those walkways with the leaves and we've come up with a system that we can mechanize with some large farm equipment and that way we're not asking people to take wheelbarrows down the field which is what had initially been happening um, and so under that those both the plastic and the leaf mulch layers you're not disturbing the soil, so you're really allowing that microbial environment to develop. So every time you weed or scratch or till or do anything with that first layer, you're disturbing that environment. So you wouldn't do it as as infrequently as possible. Um, and so the flowers are all grown primarily on that model, and that field is just as rich as can be. It has a really nice high organic matter um, level and it always seems when we do the soil test each year it always seems to come back pretty optimum conditions and so that's exciting and versus some other fields where we manage where it's on bare soil and we're weeding and cultivating and scratching the surface to kind of keep the weeds down and um, with minimal tillage we're able to still manage a nice soil microbial environment in those fields but the ones that are covered and mulched um, are far superior well, I feel like you and I have a lot of things we could talk about, but I need to throw out a question about compost because everybody who listens to the show knows that I love compost. I'm a huge fan of compost. Uh-huh. How about compost on your farm? Yeah, so we got big on compost. Um, a few years ago, we got an NRCS cost share grant to put in a cement pad. So that way we can minimize runoff of um, nutrients on the compost pad. So the pad gets layered with anything nitrogenous. So any poo-poo from the cows and the sheep, we keep a... Um, couple dairy cows that we milk for a family um, and then we do buy in some chicken manure and we'll mix that with these leaves that we're getting from neighbors and landscapers along with any vegetable scraps like yesterday we cleaned out our walking cooler from the winter from storage crops that had started to go by so all that gets mixed in so you want this really great balance between carbon and nitrogen so that you're, ha- you're getting a really hot pile and it, for an organic certified compost material, you need to heat that up three times to and turn it. You're, you're turning it and heating it three times in order to make sure that the entire pile has reached temperature and that you've killed off any pathogens that could be dangerous. So the interesting thing about compost that people don't talk about is finished compost will be cool. It will have cooled down and it is a product that can add organic matter to your soil. So it adds fluff. And then that gives you more capacity to hold nutrients and it gives you more capacity to hold moisture. But when it's cool, it means that the nutrients are gone because you've burned them off. So you actually don't have much left in the way of nitrogen or phosphorus or potassium in that compost. You might have some micronutrients, but what you're adding is organic matter. So you're fluffing your soil up and you're adding an environment that makes it really favorable for your soil microbes to grow. So what you want to do is you want to fluff your soil up and then you want to be able to add whatever fertility you're going to add. And so if you're using unfinished compost or, you know, it's still a little bit hot or you're going to put manure on your field, 
there's for organic certification there's a waiting period for when you can harvest your crops so that you're not um, exposing your customer to any potential pathogens so based on whether you put a finished compost product down or one that's still a little bit hot so we use both and depending on what the crop is that we're growing how many how long the waiting like lettuce for example we can't use anything hot because it's growing right on the soil and the way it's a fast grower herbs like a cilantro or dill or something like that so more compost based um, product with a granular fertilizer organic fertilizer well, now I'm very glad I asked that question because <laughs> I've learned something even more about compost. Yeah. I think the industrial compost um, programs that are popping up around Southern Maine are super exciting. I, I completely agree. Anybody who's not composting has no excuse now because yeah. they make it very, very easy. Yeah. Well, Stacy, I am excited to have had this conversation with you. It makes me want to go over to your farm and when the flowers start growing, be right there to pick them. I love flowers. (laughs) So I encourage people to look into the work that you are doing at Broad Term Farm in Scarborough. I've been speaking with Stacy Brenner, who along with her husband, John Bliss, and two daughters lives in Scarborough. Actually, one daughter's, she's still living with you? Oh yeah. Still living with you. She is. Great. She likes the food too much to leave. Well, that doesn't (laughs) surprise me at all. Um, Keep up the good work. I really appreciate your coming in here today and having this conversation and um, good luck with your growing season. Thank you, Lisa. Love Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. It is my pleasure today to have in the studio Mike Muinadatta, co-founder of the Portland-based Rwanda Bean Company, along with Nick Mazurowski. The company buys coffee beans from coffee farmers in Rwanda and invests 50% of its profits back into the communities from which it sources the coffee. Thank you for coming in today. Uh, Thank you for having me. Why did you become interested in coffee? Uh, That's a good question. (laughs) Um, Coffee back home is uh, the first product that the country exports and uh, 85% Uh, 85% of population there lives on agriculture. So everyone who really needs some people who need like some kind of resources of income, they get involved in the coffee. So when I moved to United States, um, I didn't know that coffee is business <laughs> like I saw. So seeing how people come in the shop from 6 a.m. to 7 p.m., spending four bucks of, to a cup of coffee. And I keep wondering why people back home, they are still poor. If one coffee cup can feed the whole family back home. So that really hit me hard, and that's how I started figure out what is missing and why. Really, they are poor over there if everyone who needs money gets involved in a coffee. So that's how the idea came in. In Rwanda, do people drink a lot of the coffee? No, really. They drink tea. They drink tea. So coffee and coffee is the first product you export and tea is the second. So most of people, they don't drink coffee, they drink tea. And I didn't drink tea 
coffee until I get here. <laughs> so they don't really drink. Sometimes I mean they don't drink coffee. Sometimes they do. Sometimes they don't. And as you know, the fight. The final product is too expensive, so sometimes some of them, if a cup is like a dollar or something, that's a lot of money for them to spend unless they can get so the point to prepare it themselves to get the cup. So otherwise, to go to the shops and uh, spend that money to buy the cup, it's a uh, it's too expensive, I would say, but tea is easier, it's cheap, so I think that's why most of them drink tea. So they, so in Rwanda, people also grow tea? Yeah, we grow tea. What type of tea is grown over there? Ah, it's black tea. Yeah. You grew up in Rwanda? Yes. And you came to Maine when? Uh, seven years ago, eight. Seven, seven or eight years ago? Yeah. Why Maine? Uh, that's a good question. <laughs> I, when I moved here, when I immigrated here, I was in Boston. And then after that, I moved to Maine when I was looking uh, a place to go to school. I was looking some school that are affordable. And Maine, when I keep looking, it looks like it was the one state that I can maybe start with and beside that I I were in contact also with some other African I like soccer so one I came with a group of guys to play soccer here and I made connection and we start talking like that so uh, I think here in Maine was easier to connect with people because of the community. And uh, down there, it's a big city. You don't see that much people going around. I think there is uh, so many resources up here that people get connected with others easily done in Boston. So when I moved here, I loved it, and then I stayed. Do you still play soccer? Yeah, I do play soccer twice a week. Twice a week. Yeah. Why did you leave Rwanda? Um, you know, you we had the history, and that history it was somehow affected some people in any ways. So some people don't have family, they're still looking. A place where they can start life. Some other people are struggling with the post-genocide conflict that were still going on. So there were so many reasons that people can leave the country. So it was one of that. And what about your family? How was your family impacted? Um, my family. They died in the genocide. Your family all died as a result of the genocide? Yeah. I just... It's a wrong story. <laughs> That's terrible. Yeah. They died. So you came here because you needed to have a new life? 
Chayu. Chinom. I think I would say sometimes when you grow up, you start looking the opportunity based on maybe your history, what you're gonna do. So sometimes when you get a chance, you grab it. So it was one of those chances, and then I grabbed it, and now I'm here. And you're working towards your MBA at the University of Southern Maine. Yeah. Uh, it's not easy. It's tough. Because, you know, when you move here, you're speaking another language, and then you try to get education in a language you didn't grow up with speaking, which is uh, in high education, so it requires so much uh, resources, <laughs> and you have to focus. And so I think education was, or in the family I grew up, education was a really big thing in our family. So I remember my dad used to say that you can lose everything in your life people can take because whatever was going on with the conflict people lose their jobs people lose their homes and he always say you know we can struggle but when you go to school you can start over and try to so I never lose that focus, and that's why also in the percentage as we grow, we're going to be giving back to the farmers. The portion of it is going to be to help other kids over there to go to school. So the 50% of the profits from your company, that's part of what you're hoping to accomplish? Yeah, there is so many things to accomplish with that fifty percent because uh, sometimes people don't know how value one dollar, what impact one dollar can make over there. So with that fifty percent, we are looking to find a way to help farmers to be more sustainable, uh, help them. Mm, get connected to this market, produce a good qua- quality of the beans, uh, but also help them in improve their lives. So that includes some of them, even if they are in a coffee business, they can't afford to send kids to school. So sometimes those farmers, their children are laying just on that coffee uh business and uh, so that means if they can afford to go to school when they grow up after they finish elementary school or high school they they start helping their parents and somehow they they end up in that way and the country is trying to is coming over whatever the tragedy the tragedy they went through and they try to develop the business where everyone is involved and I believe education is one key to help the country society grow more and 
I think education can reduce that eight five percent of population relying on subsistence agriculture, create more jobs and so we it's just a beginning but I hope one step one a small step can take you to a big step. So it's a beginning and I wanna see it grow and see where it takes us. So when you go to a coffee shop and you see somebody spending at least $4 for a cup of coffee and you know that $4 back in Rwanda can feed the whole family. Feeds the whole family. A day. For a whole day. And then maybe someone is spending, is buying two cups a day. <laughs> so that's like a meal of two days. That's how I try just picturing and then I'm like how can I sell more coffee so then I can so you can spend more send more dollars over uh, we don't focus just on giving back because we also buy the beans at a premium price so because we are not buying through the middlemen so we bringing in the beans direct from them so in but the whole system is to help them. S some of the farmers ha don't have access to the resources they need to be able to provide the final product, that, which is the beans we bring here, because they can't afford it. So with the, pro with the structure of our business of giving back, we gonna be building those kind of resources that is owned by those co-ops, co those farmers. So that means even if we can't buy all the product because we don't have the market yet, but they can still not selling the beans as a cherries, they can sell the beans as a, a final product. So that means at least they, we are bringing value to the product. So that's the whole thing, that's the program that we're trying to accomplish. Yeah, we're still figuring out how to make it happen, but I believe it's be, this is our third year, and I believe we have run, because when I came in the coffee business, I didn't know anything about coffee, so I run every day, every day. I speak to them every day, so... I speak to people who drink coffee. I know people want like really good coffee here. And I know people love to feel like what they are spending is getting back really to the roots where does they produce they they are where does the product they are eating or drinking come from. So I try to be like a bridge that connects those uh, farmers and the consumers and see what it takes us. Where is your coffee sold now? We are online on our website so people can buy the beans on roasted coffee on our website and then we ship to them. We are also in, we do wholesales in local stores like Scratch Bakery in South Poland, the farm stand in South Poland, Rory's Natural Market, both Poland and Scarborough, the 
iron cheese in Scarborough, cheese iron. Oh, the cheese iron in yeah, Scarborough, yes. Yeah. Um, we are in Aurora Provision in the West End, AC store up here on uh, Washington Ave, um, Arabica, in a few restaurants we are, Evo, uh, the King's Head, uh, so we are we are in those small shops around the city, but we hope to expand it as we grow. Your co-founder is Nick Mazurowski. Yes. And are the two of you responsible for getting the coffee into the wholesale locations or into the restaurants? Are you the ones who are convincing people to put their put your coffee out there? Yeah, we <laughs> we go there. We go there door by door. We talk to them. We use. We have a few tools that we use in media and. We try to get the order out so and then we know the coffee is really good so we know when it gets in their hands at least there is a big chance they will have it so we try just to get the order out and see what happens so, so once people try the coffee then yeah. they'll keep buying the coffee yeah because what we focus on is the quality first and then all other things it comes after because we want, if we want you to drink coffee and you want it to have impact, first we want to make sure you are drinking good coffee and then you feel good about what you're doing with it. So once we get the coffee day, our job is done. We are waiting you to see if you really want to keep drinking it. How many other people work in your company? Um, by now, I would say it would be me and Nick, but we, most of our jobs, we hire like third-party contracts as we hire agencies and companies to do some of our, our job until we have been focusing much on business development, on brand development. So I think now we are working on expanding the team and uh, bringing in more skills people in the areas where we need it, where we need to, and then working from there. How many farmers do you work with in Rwanda? Right now we are working around 300 to 400. And these are farmers that work within a cooperative? Yes, it's, that's one co-op. That's, that's one co-op? Yeah, in one region. So we had to start, there is, more than 200,000 farmers in Rwanda and of coffee farmers. And Rwanda, it's a small country. It's a third of men. So you can feed three Rwandans in three Rwanda country instead of men, but it's a 13 times population. So men have 1.3 population. Rwanda has 13 million. So you can imagine if you're working with 300 coffee farmers, that's a small number compared to how small countries and how overpopulated it is. So that's just one small region, that's one co-op. But 
I always get calls, text message from people from Rwanda asking if we can walk. I just fly back from Seattle to the Coffee Expo, the world, the oldest Coffee Expo. And I was lucky to meet with people from Rwanda who are there to to talk about the coffee, to talk about the product. And so I got a chance to meet with all of them and everyone is like, how can we work together? How So that really shows you the inability to access to the market and I think uh, finding a way to connect them to the market will be a good way to improve what they do and see the magic happens. <laughs> How much coffee are you able to bring into Maine and the United States right now? Um, so we don't do like big scales. As I told you, we've been uh, focusing on brand development, but we have access to the inventory. We have a warehouse. Uh, so we have been focusing on bringing in the quantity of the beans that we are able we to move, but we can bring like containers and containers. We just still working on the access to the market. Coffee business is a very competitive market and uh, it takes the time people to start trusting your brand and to start knowing you are out there uh, to know your quality so uh, I think we are moving toward to bring in as much as we can as grow the market as much as we can we are right now uh, launch we are invo getting involved in a few products so we are launching like a cold brew that is gonna be in borrow so that's another piece of the market that we are bringing in so if that increase the quantity that we really want to bring in then that's how we're trying to work step by step what have you learned through your MBA studies that you've been able to apply to your coffee company? Um, I, I have learned maybe how I would say to be professional, and, but I wouldn't say that what, I did, what I'm doing, I learned from the MBA. What I'm doing comes from my heart. I think that's what I really wanted to do. It wasn't. I wasn't even thinking about like owning a company. I just when I saw the coffee situation, I just say I want. I wanna do something. So either from school, but. It comes, it's not, I, I would say it's not like skills that I learned in school that I, I'm applying to the business, no, it is just things I love to do, I like to 
do something socially that have impact to people and makes me feel good and I like to be connected with people. So for me, it will be amazing to see the company succeed by connecting people here and people back home and see good things happen. So, and that, that is not something I learned from school. It's just, I love people and I want to do something to improve their lives. So I want to provide good coffee to people who love drinking coffee, but I also want to do amazing things to people who grow that coffee so um that's but you still need to know how to navigate your numbers and the policies and the taxes so those are where the score comes in so i would say it's a compliment it's not just saying you're good or at what you do but sometimes there is some things you have to run where you, when you want to throw the rows and uh, so those are the stuff you have to get educated on and uh, I think I would say just having do things doesn't say you do it right so you always have to comply with uh, the rows and the what you are not doing, make sure it all flows together. So I would say education comes in and complement what I try to do. And I would say it's all vice versa, so. So your father was right about education, that it's important. It's not everything, but it is something that once you have it, nobody can take it away from you and it'll become what it needs to be in your life? Yeah, um, the reason why my father would say that he was, he was really hard on us when it comes to education. So if you don't have a good grade, he will really yelling at you. Or, but he wanna show you he's not like yelling at you because he just wants you to perform well. He just, wanna show you how important is the education and I believe in that. I believe education is a good tool for people to have and it's important one because um, I think it opens up your mind and to see the, to analyze what is going on but also enable you to do, to be, an employer or employer of something so you will see when there is no any application where even if it's serving in a restaurant or it's always asked to have you will sometime when I read them they say at least you need to have education in high school so you will see there is there is always something you have to run from school and I can second my dad saying that education is something that is important and yeah, I think he was right. <laughs> I've been speaking with Mike Mwanidata, who is the co-founder of the Portland-based Rwanda Bean Company, which buys coffee from coffee farmers in Rwanda and invests 50% of its profits back into the communities from which the coffee was sourced.
good job with what you're doing. I appreciate all the hard work you're putting into this, and I thank you for coming in today. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity you guys gave me, and thank you. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 301, Farming Flowers and Cultivating Coffee. Our guests have included Stacy Brenner and Mike Wanadata. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Farming Flowers and Cultivating Coffee show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasik. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Belisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a track from Spencer Albee's new album, Relentlessly Yours in stores and online now at spenceralby.com.
Say